You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. I'm going to pray for us, but um, really quick, I want to talk about unity today. Everybody say unity. Does anybody know the song UNITY? Yes. There you go. We should have sang that today. But um, before we talk about unity, I want to divide us first, because that's only appropriate. Um, maybe a couple examples. One is, um, how many guys love Twizzlers? Raise your hand. Okay, well, let me, let me, let me clarify. I'm going to give you two options to choose from. I want to know which one you prefer, uh, and then we're going to fight about it. So how many of you guys know we've got Twizzlers, but how many of you guys know about Red Vines? Okay, so all the Twizzler fans, raise your hand. Red Vines, let me see where you are. Wow. All right. God help us. What about what? Black literature is good too, but let's keep it in the red family today to keep it simple. Let me pray for us um, since we're divided. Father, just uh, we thank you that your church isn't built on agreement, but it's built on you. God, give us just the weight of your opinion this morning. Give us your heart. God, let us see that you're the main thing, and we want to keep the main thing the main thing. God, that we would build around the right thing. And so, Father, we just pray for um, just a heart of unity, the one that you carried the one that you called us to god that we could somehow just grasp it in a deeper way this morning god equip your church and build your church in jesus name amen um i like both i like red vines i think probably a little bit more it's kind of like eating a hollow candle with a little bit of cherry on it uh, which is really good here's another one um how many guys are skinny jeans versus baggy jeans skinny jeans raise your hand baggy jeans Someone said normal jeans. That's not on the menu. Uh, but baggy jeans, I think, are coming back, so i got to go shopping. But um, I want to I talk about unity. How many of you guys know that the kingdom, uh, kingdom culture is centered around this concept of family? Jesus is the son who came to reveal a father. He and the father were one. Jesus prays that they would be one in the same way that we are one. So the way that they were one was in the context of family. So it's on the heart of Jesus that the church models and looks like um, this beautiful culture of family. But the culture of family is unity, right? Um, and I want to dig into this a little bit this morning, hit some passages, and maybe talk about some of the division points we reach um, at the church. But let's th- think about why unity is important. First off, because Jesus modeled it. He called us to it to reveal who he is. Okay, um, I want to start with thinking about, and I've taught on this before, but just really quick to recap. The very table of Jesus um, was the place he was cultivating unity and family. But the table of Jesus started extremely diverse. In fact, to build unity, you normally have to start with diversity. And real unity isn't without diversity because unity is not uniformity. Unity is not where everyone looks the same, smells the same, sounds the same, and likes the same things. Uh, a good example is Red Vines versus Twizzler. That's not unity. Okay, That's agreement. And preference is really what that is. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But the table of Jesus, if we put it in context and really view it, was probably one of the most disruptive, bizarre places to be 
of all the ingredients you're going to choose to model a family on earth that looks like family culture in heaven, this was probably not the guys I would have picked. Jesus picked some regular guys, but there's a few guys I want to point out. Jesus obviously picked Peter, who he knew was going to deny him. He picks uh, Matthew, who's a tax collector uh, for the Romans, which is pretty much the enemy to a good Jew. They would have seen Matthew as not just a Roman enemy, but a, an enemy nonetheless. He would have been despised. He would have been hated. People wouldn't want to wouldn't have wanted to sit with him. Um, he wouldn't just be disliked. He, w- he would be extremely hated. Okay, And this is who Jesus picks. Now on top of that, he picks uh, Simon, who uh, was a zealot, the Bible says. This would have been a political activist, probably mainly uh, driven to see the Romans overthrown and cast out of their place to restore Israel and all these good things. So here's Jesus at his table building a context of family, and the ingredients he chooses is two extremes. Some normal people in the middle, Okay, they don't know. They don't really care for candy, right? But here you've got a Twizzler lover and a Red Vine lover, and they hate the other. These guys would have been at war and at each other's throats probably every meal. And this is the climate Jesus chose to put himself in. And then there's Judas, who's a thief and betrays Jesus and all that good stuff, and we know the story. Um, But what an interesting ingredient list to perfect the recipe of family. Jesus, let me put it this way, Jesus just invited the extremes of our whole COVID season and political season to dinner and said, let's build a family. Can I tell you that the church is not built around uniformity? And if the church isn't willing to be uncomfortable with some of those sitting at our table, then we'll actually never get a full revelation of what kingdom unity and kingdom family actually look like. Okay? Um, I'm sure it wasn't comfortable when Simon was sitting there one day at lunch and Matthew walks in. I'm sure Jesus probably had to immediately put out a fire. Because to be a zealot meant there was passion behind his conviction. And usually when there's passion, there's some uh, language and voices that follow because he probably wasn't the most silent type. So I'm sure the dinner table of Jesus, even though we've got this iconic scene of a Last Supper, it did not start like that. Because that Last Supper scene, everybody's kind of leaning in to Jesus. They're kind of in this intimate moment, trying to grasp the mystery of a body that's broken and blood that's spilled. But it did not look like that at the First Supper. It was probably pretty rambunctious. But this is what Jesus is using to build unity. All that to say, we have no excuse. Right? We have no excuse to discard people who aren't like us. Why? Because Jesus modeled it, and then he called us to it. Now, check out this passage, John 13, 34 through 35. This is who Jesus is speaking to. And he's on the tail end of this thing, right? They've had plenty of dinners together. He's built some uh, community around the table. There's still some disruption, but they're, they're leaning in more than they're leaning out. But here's who he tells this command to, and it's, it's pretty impactful. Uh, he says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. This is who he's telling to love one another. And Jesus also uses this concept. He says, the world will know that you're mine based on how you love one another. In other words, the lens to me is through you and through the way that you love the other. 
In other words, he's talking literally to Simon and Matthew, some fishermen, to Judas, to Peter. And he's saying the way that you, Simon, love the guy that you despise is how the world will know that you're mine. Because that's what my love looks like. My love sits at a table and it endures the differences. Because in the kingdom, differences aren't divisions. Amen. And I'm going to anchor this around truth in a moment. But it is so important that as a church, uh, we really anchor deeply into this call and commission of what unity really looks like. Uh, Because Jesus modeled it. He commanded us to love one another. And then he said the way that he's revealed is through this kind of love. Amen. (sighs) Unity is a non-negotiable for the church. Okay. Uh, Ephesians 4 says this. This is the purpose of ministry and gathering. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. It says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body would be built up until we all reach unity. Ever say unity? Until we all reach unity in the faith. Again, not uniformity, but unity. And in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. And I love this because it means that maturity isn't dependent on you getting really good and self-developed. Maturity is dependent on us knowing him and uh, being built up in unity. Unity is a crucial building block uh, for spiritual maturity. Amen? In fact, I, I know plenty of people who are really good at spiritual stuff but they're not good at loving their neighbor. And if you're really good at spiritual stuff, but not good at loving your neighbor, then you're not really good at spiritual stuff, right? We can sometimes boast about walking on water and speaking in tongues, but if we can't love the person who also has a seat at the table, then we're not really growing and maturing spiritually because uh, spiritual maturity is built on this concept of unity. It goes on to say, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become every respect, the mature body uh, of him who is the head, that is Christ. Verse 16, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So the body has many parts. Unity means diversity working together for a common thing. It means people who are completely different are rallied around something that is common. Now the table of Jesus is a great picture of this because here's uh, there's two things that were at that table. One is there was always truth, and there's more things, but there was always truth, but there was always preference. I want to look at truth first because in this context, truth wasn't just a moral statement. It was a person Jesus. Jesus was the thing that was tethering different streams around a common thing because he was the common thing. And in some weird, bizarre grace, he could take all of these extremes, all of their preferences, all of their tendencies, and anchor them and and, and allow them to be yielded to him. Guys, this this is what the church is supposed to be. That when Jesus is the common thing... It doesn't matter what our thing is, okay? Because unity has to be built 
around truth. Truth is important because uh, the book of John says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you what? Set you free. So truth is what enables us to walk in freedom. Um, Ephesians 4 even echoed that. He said, till we all reach unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Well, the Son of God is truth. He is the way and the truth. So knowing him means knowing truth. And if I'm going to build unity, it has to be built around truth. Okay, Unity is not built around full agreement, except agreement about him. And we're going to look at this in just a minute. But truth is crucial, and truth is always um, at the table. Let me say it like this. Unity is built around truth, not my truth and not your truth. Right? It's not built around my truth. It's not built around your truth. It's built around the truth. I think one of the biggest uh, things we navigate sometimes is we hold a measure of the truth as the whole truth. Or we take my preference and make it truth. Right? And this is where division forms. But unity is not built around my truth or your truth. Unity is built around the truth. And the truth is a person even when we don't fully understand this mystery Jesus, we know that he is true, right? I guarantee you these guys sat night after night at a table trying to unpack something Jesus did that day, whether it was opening a blind eye, whether it was loving people that maybe uh, they struggled with, maybe uh, it was the time he multiplied the fishes and loaves. I'm sure they sat at a table night after night trying to unravel the mystery of this guy who they feel and know to be true, but they don't understand probably half of what they're even seeing, right? Um, Unity's not built on understanding. It's built on truth, right? Uh, let's keep reading just a little bit. Oh. Here's some of the divisions that we get to around church. Actually, let me say this before we read anymore. I think part of our tension as the church is we don't know how it's possible for truth and mystery to coexist, right? And maybe this is where they were. Maybe they're again seeing Jesus. He's truth. He's obviously got something on his life, but they don't even understand it. And one of the tensions I think we wrestle with is we need to know what we don't know. And in that realm is when truth becomes my truth or my truth or your truth become the truth and when we try to build around that that is where tension erupts right uh, simon had his truth matthew had his truth they both think they're right some of you like twizzler some of you like red vines you both think you're right and when you both think you're right you're both wrong because the only one right at the table is jesus and Jesus is bringing people to him. And it doesn't mean there's not right or wrong. It just means that everything has to be anchored back to Jesus. But our tension is we don't always know how to reconcile uh, the reality that truth and mystery can coexist. And we just simply don't have to know everything. Unity cannot be built without us being willing to, to, to crucify the need to know everything. Right? I mean, these guys knew nothing, and they had a seat. They're following Jesus. The world's being flipped upside down. They understand 
nothing that they're seeing. Even when Jesus tries to unpack it or explain it, it's still so kind of vague sometimes and mysterious that I'm sure they're like, yeah, Jesus, I get it. But when they left, they're like, I don't get it at all. But the world's being flipped upside down. And those who aren't in agreement are sitting together. They're breaking bread together. And no longer is it even about, and you can see this through the Gospels, their arguments uh, sometimes were more geared to who, who, who was going to be the best disciples. It was no longer about, hey, he's a tax collector, Jesus. So even their own arguments have bowed to the moment and to the breaking of bread centered around this truth named Jesus. Because unity is built around truth. It's not built around knowledge. It's not built around knowing everything. But we have to be willing in an effort to build unity uh, to be a place where truth and mystery can coexist. And we have to crucify the need um, to know everything. Let me tell you some of the division points that we fight over in the church. And we could have fun with this and be here all day. But usually we fight over what we think we know. Amen. Uh, Anybody know what hobby theology is? It's the things we like to talk about but shouldn't teach. Like, here's an example. Uh, We might divide the church today. When is the world going to end? Good example. Eschatology. Great, like, you know, vein of theology. But here's, here's the reality. No one knows. No one knows. But that didn't stop millions of, well, maybe not millions, but a lot of people from writing books on what they didn't know. I actually have a book somewhere uh, called, I think it's like 100 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988 or something like that. Did you have that book? 88 Reasons. So he even worked it in. Like 88 for 88. I mean, just brilliant marketing. And when it doesn't happen, they revise it and you know put a new one out and make some cash. But... The church specializes in what we don't know. And then we wonder why we're gasping for true community and kingdom-driven unity. Uh, Because we're fighting over all the unclear places that God hasn't even revealed. We fight over the hobby theology. The stuff that no one knows. We don't know how God's going to work this out or that out. We don't know what day he's coming. We don't know how he's going to come. Is he going to drive a car? Is he going to be a horse? Is it going to be a, is it literal? Is it a metaphor? We don't know how the book of Revelation unfolds. We don't even know uh, anything that we think we know except Jesus is at the table, that he lived, he died, he was buried, he was raised from the dead, that he was the son sent from the father. Like we know enough truth to anchor and build unity on, but we usually try to build around the stuff that we don't know and that is equals division right because division is usually birthed out of our interpretations but unity is birthed out of truth when we anchor around the main thing and keep it clear and simple then we can cultivate unity but if we can't sacrifice the need to try and build around what we actually don't even know, that it's it's inevitable that we'll cultivate division, right? Um, Jesus was so good at anchoring these guys back to himself time and time again. But unity is not built by everything being known. 
And we can't cultivate true unity without crucifying that need to know everything. Let me also say this. I don't know how to word this, but the difference between unity and compromise, because here's what unity isn't. Unity isn't living a life with no boundaries. Um, and in, in this idea of just embracing everyone. Okay, let, let, let me make up an example. Uh, my friend, John Schroeder, uh, who I've seen just had some black belts uh, graduate in his household. So that's awesome. But let's say John decides uh, he's a black belt too, and maybe you are. And John starts hitting me. Frail little, just humble pastor starts hitting me. And in an effort to, you know, turn the other cheek and uh, try to cultivate unity, I just let John keep hitting me. Because I'm just going to take as many hits as you want. Every time he hits me, I'm going to look deep into his eyes and say, John, I love you. I love you. That is not unity. That's abuse. Uh, But here's what unity isn't. Unity is not compromise or a a system with no boundaries um, that promote toxicity or abuse. Amen. Uh, In fact, part of unity, as you saw in Ephesians, was speaking the truth in love. But here's the thing. If you don't have love, then quickly the truth becomes your truth. And we speak usually our truth. I speak my truth. And love always has to come first. Jesus had a value system at the table. That's what empowered him to invite people to it. It was the gasoline in the engine that made it work. But truth was the anchor that brought different streams, different people, different opinions into an anchored place, right? Um, The difference between truth... uh, or sorry, the difference between unity and compromise is whether or not truth is sitting at our table. If it has the main seat, then we can build unity. If it doesn't, then we might just be building compromise. Okay, and again, compromise is, hey, I'm going to sacrifice some truth so that we can, you know, be friends, so that we can get along. Unity is not about just getting along. Amen. You can do that and not have unity. It's Southern culture, by the way, to not have unity and get along. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, people don't tell you what you really think. That's why I love New Yorkers. You don't have to question what they're thinking. Uh, and I think they like red vines. Um, here's the other thing that's at the table. There's truth. It's the thing that we can build on. Here's the other thing that's always at the table is preference. Okay? If I set a dinner table and invite you over, I'm going to have you over to my house. And you're probably, if you're like me, unless you're adventurous, a little nervous about what's being served. Okay? Now, just to give you some insight, I'm a very picky eater. And that's why God didn't send me to the nation's. Um, cause I just, I would die out there. I wouldn't eat food and stuff. And, and so if you're like me, you're kind of nervous because what's going to happen is you're going to show up to someone's house and on the table, there's going to be something that you don't like. 
Right? Now, let me tell you one thing that I hate with all my heart. can't find it in the Bible. That's why I hate it. Jesus didn't eat it, so that's also why I hate it. Uh, and anyone who likes it is just wrong. But mayonnaise is probably the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. Now, if you like mayonnaise this morning, calm down. You can eat as much as you want. But me and Jesus will not be partaking. Um, now, if you like mayonnaise at your house and I come over and you've got mayonnaise on the table, instantly I'm like, oh no. I hope they didn't put it in the rest of the food. But if it's an option on the table, then I'm, I'm, I'm relieved because that means it's an option and I don't have to partake. <sighs> Can I expound on the Twizzler Red Vine uh, dilemma? Who's right and who's wrong? Are red vines better or are Twizzlers better? Who's right? Who's wrong? This is the tension of the church. Division comes when we feel like someone has to be right or wrong over preference issues. It's not a right or wrong. In fact, if you want to uh, start to deviate from the truth, which is Jesus, and build your truth or my truth, then what's happening is your preference has become truth. The second our preference has to be about a right or wrong is the second it becomes my truth. And a church that's built on my truth or your truth is going to be a divided church. Because you can only build true unity on a church that's built on the truth, which is Jesus front and center of the table. And here's what's interesting. It is okay for us to sit at a table together with different Different opinions and different preferences. You may like mayo, I may hate it, but I don't get the right to leave the family or leave the dinner just because someone has mayo on the table. I'm using this example because it's so silly. We, we, we kind of think, well, yeah, no, I'm not going to leave your, your dinner uh, because you had something I didn't like. But that is exactly what happens in the church so often. Paul's writing about this, and I've got to hurry up. But Paul's writing about this. Paul's gone um, to Corinth for a year and a half. He's kind of uh, organically built fellowship and birthed this church. And he's gone and moved on to another city. And then he gets word, uh, the Bible says, from Chloe's house. We don't even know who Chloe is, but she was stirring something up. And she, she gets word to Paul and says, hey, the church is just in chaos. They're fighting over everything. Like 1 Corinthians is like this beautiful uh, just snapshot of what church division is and how silly it can be. Some were important topics. Most of them were stupid. Okay. And so Paul uh, writes to them. I just want to pull out one snippet, and you can read so much. Um, in that book, but 1 Corinthians 10 through 13, here's what he says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Now, I'm going to fix this in a second um, so that we don't hear that as uniformity, that you all agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you are perfectly united in mind and thought. Our brothers and sisters, here's kind of the context of what he's addressing, because they're fighting over leaders in this first part of First Corinthians. It's a popularity contest. They're not even probably concerned uh, so much with what's being said anymore, but how someone's saying it. 
I prefer this style. I prefer mayonnaise. I prefer mustard. I like Apollos. I like uh, Paul. I'm of Cephas. I think Peter's uh, the best pastor. And this is what they're fighting about. And Paul's probably dumbfounded, like, what in the world? Is this really where we are? He says, uh, some from a close house have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul, another Apollos, another Cephas, still another, the humble one, I follow Christ. And verse 13, he says, but is Christ divided? In other words, he's dropping an acre saying there is no point at the table of Jesus where you ever get permission to slice off and make the whole pie a piece. It's never going to be about just following this. In other words, Jesus is the anchor. He's always the one that's front and center. When Paul says, I want you uh, to agree and be of the same mind, united in mind and thought, he's not talking about in everything. He's talking about around Jesus. He's bringing it back from all this stuff they're fighting about because they're fighting about preference. And they say, it's not about your preference, it's about Jesus. Corinthians fight over these leaders. They start fighting over sexual issues, trying to figure out the balance between what can we do, what can't we do. There's grace for this, some were saying, and some were saying, no, there's not. They're fighting over that. They start fighting over uh, multiple things. One at the end of the book is they're fighting over the resurrection. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Some think it's not that important. Paul obviously thought that it was. Another thing that they're fighting about was what can we eat, what can't we eat? How should we conduct our gatherings? Come on, if this doesn't sound like Southern American church, I don't know what does. This is how silly it is. Um, can I bring my shofar? Because if I can't, i got to find another church. Can I play my tambourine? And the real answer is probably not. That's why we usually take them away from people, because you can't keep it on beat. But, but this is what the church fights over. It's not fighting over truth. It's fighting over preference. But where did you see Jesus divide over preference? Unity does not come from preference-driven culture. Unity comes from truth-driven culture, from a culture that's rallied around Jesus saying, hey, I don't know how you're going to make this work, God, but we're here for you. We're gathering around you. Unity comes in an environment where people are not like you. In fact, Jesus intentionally chose these guys. He invited diversity to dinner And says, here's how we're going to display the kingdom of God. Love one another. Love one another. And Paul's dealing with the church. Who is up in arms. About, hey, what... What kind of food can we eat? And here's what I love that Paul does. And he does this in, in a lot of the early church uh, letters. But he does this specifically here. And I think even the latter part of Romans. But here's what he tells him. He says, hey, if what you're doing is hindering someone else, even if you're free to do it, then prefer them over your preference. Oh, <laughs> that is not the best thing I want to hear sometimes. Can I tell you this um, really quickly? 
and I'm going to wind down here in just a little bit. That means 10 more minutes. In the early days when we planted our old church, I wrestled with this tension of keeping everything so pure and keeping Jesus at the forefront. And I just had no tolerance for religious behavior and all that, you know, trendy reactionary stuff. And I offended so many people in that season because they had preferences and opinions. And I just didn't, I didn't care. I had no empathy, right? Um, and I was a little more blunt back in those days. It's before I had children and a beautiful, sweet wife. And um, I would just shut people down. They come in and say, hey, why aren't we doing this? It's like, because it ain't about you. It's about Jesus. <laughs> Which I wasn't wrong in my truth. I was wrong in my delivery. And it was just this thing. I thought, man, I, I just out of purity, I'm trying to guard what is the Lord so that we don't mess it up with all our preference-driven stuff. So every time something would show up, I'd just shut it down. And then I realized my preference was to not tolerate their preference. And then the Lord had to, you know, kind of fix my perspective because what I realized was I'm actually hindering them coming to him. Because as much as I don't want them to build the church around their preference, I'm actually building it around mine. And it was really was my interpretation of truth. And Paul's writing, he says, hey, it's not about the meat that you eat, the drink that you drink. It's, that's, that's not even the issue. He goes on uh, to talk about, hey, if you're just speaking in tongues all the time, here's, here's what I want you to do. Make worship intelligible so that people can come to know the Father. He's not talking about go be a seeker-sensitive church. He's just saying don't do you so much that they can't partake of him. Don't make it so much your thing and your way and your preference. Part of worship is that I sacrifice my preference. That's what I'm giving to God most times. I'm saying, God, this is the way that I want to meet you. But sometimes he's saying, but I want others to meet me too. And I realized for me, I had to like prefer others over my preference. And this is exactly what Paul is fixing. Saying, hey, if you prefer to eat meat, it's not a right or wrong issue. The second we make it a right or wrong issue is the second it's division. Right? And that's what they're, is exactly what they were doing. This is a preference issue. But prefer your brother over your preference. And then when that's, they're not around, have your preference all you want. Right? But the church divides over stuff like this. Because sometimes we just try to build around preference instead of truth. And Jesus is truth and preference is preference. Amen. When preference becomes our truth, division happens. It just does. But I also want to encourage us, and I'm going to read a passage about Jesus and pray for us. That means ten more minutes. Um. Let me, let me say it like this. Here's the dangerous thing we get trapped in. And this is kind of where the Corinthian church was struggling, trying to figure out how, how do we worship. More often than we realize, 
we get trapped. When we're trapped in preference, here's what happens. And I'm saying this is a guilty party. We start to worship the way we worship rather than the one we worship. Does that make sense? The way we do it becomes the thing that we serve. We think if we don't do it this way, then we're doing it the wrong way. Right? This is why I offended so many people in the early days of our church um, because they would bring their preference in and I'd say, no, you can't do that here. Because in their mind it was, well, if I can't do it this way, then I'm actually not free to worship. Uh, And the truth is, I just didn't want you to hit one of our kids with your 90-foot shofar. Uh, That's a different story for a different Sunday. But when we build on preference... We so quickly worship the way that we worship rather than the one that we worship. And if we lose sight of him at the table, division happens. But if we keep the main thing the main thing, it doesn't matter if there's 50 different preferences in the room because we're not here for preference. We're here for Jesus. Amen. Let me tell you about Jesus really quick, and I'm going to pray. Because some of you prefer to get out of here. But the church isn't built on... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Philippians 2, 2 through 8. And Paul's writing, you can go read this to get the context before, but he says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one. Again, agreement does not mean everyone. Let me give you an example. When a choir sings, they're singing the same words but different parts. So they're the same, but they're not the same. So he's not saying be the same in the sense everything about you is the same. That's not even possible. He's saying rally around the same thing, but be you around it. Say the same thing, but sing it your way. This is the beauty of a multifaceted body. He's saying we are many members of one body. Each has their part, but we're all called to the same thing. And if that thing moves and becomes preference, then division is going to happen. The church is going to be of this and of that and that and whatever. Right? And this is what Paul's dealing with. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. What does that look like? It means preferring others over my preference. Verse 4, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, look at this. This This is what that mindset looks like. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance. As a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's what that means. The mind of Christ was this, that God comes in the flesh, and even though he was God, he didn't consider his equality with God something to use to advantage. I'm sure Jesus preferred sometimes to be God and not human. 
I'm sure before the cross as he's starting to sweat blood saying, hey, if it's possible, let this cup pass when the weight of humanity is pressing on the moment in which humanity would pivot. I'm sure his preference was, hey, I'm just going to go home and like sit in the recliner and not do all the dying stuff. That would have been a better option, right? But we serve a Jesus who sacrificed his preference to prefer humanity because the only way we were united with him is because he gave up who he was as God to unite with us as human so that we could be the recipients of something greater. And the only reason we have salvation in this position in Jesus is because he was a God who preferred us over himself. So you see, unity is a non-negotiable. And sacrificing preference is a non-negotiable. Because to have the mind of Jesus means I'm taking on a mind that is willing to give up my preference to sit at the table with you so that we can model what the kingdom of God looks like. Amen? I'm going to pray for us. Father, God, give us grace in a world and I, th- I think about the, just the, the climate you came Jesus into God there was tension, there were divisions there were things in the natural things in the religious world that were swirling, they were fighting but you somehow pulled a seat up in the middle of all of that noise and invited participants from all different spaces to come and sit with you and God more than ever may we see that our win as your people as a church isn't to get the right flavor or style or model our win is to sit with you Because sitting with you is the only place you can take all this diversity and make it a beautiful tapestry of kingdom. God, I pray that you would just give us the grace to be like you in the sense that you would come fully God and fully man, but prefer man. So that there could be redemption, so that we could come to know the Father the way that you did. And God, may we see that sometimes the greatest hindrance from the world coming to know you isn't just their blind eyes. It's my preference. Because my preference divides the church. And the world's desperate to see a church who's sitting at the table together. So God, give us grace to know what it really means to be together and not be the same. To live in this tension of truth and mystery and not need to know everything. And God, give us the wisdom to not build on everything that we don't know. And we trust you, God. Here's the the thing I want us to have in our heart um, this morning as we pray. And maybe just a question for you this week. Can we really trust God with the person at the table that we're struggling with?
And maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's a whole stream of people. But can I really trust who he is with who they are? And I want to ask you this in the most simple of ways, because I believe if, if we don't practice these things, sometimes it's good information, but not always great change. Really pray this week, God, what's the one area I could host a table? What's the one place I could host a table? It doesn't have to be a physical dinner table. And if it is, don't put mayo on it because that's not cool. But God, what's the one area I can host a table? It's not built on preference, where differences don't have to be divisions, but you're the main thing. I think that's the space God's calling us into, because that's the space the church has to put energy. Amen. Awesome. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.